Greetings from the humongous. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Get to the chopper! I'll have what she's having. Hey, Dr. Jones, no friends for love! Hey, hey, Sal, how come the brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit! Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. It's a fine line between stupid and clever. You send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskin. And, uh, well, we're uh, taking a season-long drive through the films of the 1980s, Steve. That's right. And uh, what do we got today? It's an exciting topic, isn't it? Today, break out your machetes. We're wielding into the shit. Oh, my God. uh, We're going to discuss movies of the 80s that were about the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War. A fun war, right, Steve? Wasn't that fun? (laughs) No, not according to the movies of the 80s. Uh, but uh, it is an interesting subject, and, and you know, it, it occurred to me that uh, uh, a lot of the 80s, and a lot of films of the 80s, and a lot of, like, mass media of the 80s seem to have an obsession with the 1960s. Right? Yes. That probably has to do with the fact that the people who were young in the 1960s were kind of running the world in the 1980s. That's a good, yeah, a good way to think about it. Uh, the people who were in their 20s or even teens that they were starting, yeah. Yeah, we're now middle-aged, we're now the, the baby boomers, let's, call them, let's yeah. call them that. Boomers, as the kids say. Okay, boomer, right? People say that to me. Why? <laughs> I'm not a boomer. I'm Gen X, man. We're much cooler. But boomers had a penchant, shall we say, for self-examination. And Did hence, they ever. Yeah, hence I mean, uh, all the 60s stuff in the 80s, right? Yes, that's, uh, so I was a child in the 80s. And uh, by the time I came out of the 80s, I started high, you know, I was high school in the early part of the 90s. And by the time I hit high school, man, I never wanted to hear about the 1960s. I had heard so much of it. It just felt rammed down my throat by the boomers over and over again. That everybody's like, music's never going to be as good, man, as it was in the 60s. You (laughs) kids don't even know. I mean, to the point, Andre, we're like, I refused to listen to Bob Dylan until I was like 18 or 20. Because I was just like, no, get out. I'm, I'm not even going to give it a chance because I was so annoyed at how much it was just constantly like the boomers want to make sure everybody knew, like, man, we saved culture. We were so cool. They stopped the war, man. They stopped the war. <laughs> Did they? Well, I don't know about that. But uh... but so a big part of that is uh, 
and there was a lot of Vietnam uh, looking back on this was. generation and in the 80s. Yeah. And uh, and it was everywhere. It was in uh, it was in movies and probably in TV shows. Uh, I read GI Joe comic books and uh, this guy named Larry Hama wrote most of almost the entire run of those comics. He himself was a Vietnamese vet. And uh, that figured heavily. He worked that into the mythos of this comic book based on the toy line. Yeah. That all the, you know, a lot of the main characters in that comic were haunted by their experiences in Vietnam. So uh, just kind of everywhere. Yeah, it certainly was, Steve. And uh, leading up to the 80s, though, there were some great films already being made about Vietnam. In fact, in the last couple of years of the decade of the 70s, we got The Deer Hunter, and then we got Apocalypse Now. Two great films. Yeah. Right? And I would say Apocalypse Now, in my opinion, one of the greatest films ever made. It's a miracle that movie got made at all. And it is a staggering artistic achievement. I don't know if it's really about Vietnam per se, but it certainly works Vietnam very cleverly into its narrative, right? It sort of adapts a work of literature yeah. and brings it to Vietnam, updates it. Yeah, which kind of, uh, you know, Coppola's always, it, as far as I know, Coppola's never done theater, but certainly as a film director, he's got kind of that, like, theatrical mindset, like uh, like a live theater director, where, like, I'll, I'll take a story and put it in a different, you know, setting, and similar to, people take Shakespeare's plays sometimes and put them into non-Shakespearean times. Yes. You know, they might set it in Wall Street or set it on the streets, and... You know, West Side Story famously is kind of like a Romeo Kinda. and Juliet. Kind of. <laughs> well, but so Apocalypse Now is this, you know, a non, it's a novel, um, Heart of Darkness, which, you know, did not take place in Vietnam. Joseph Conrad. Yeah, yeah. written many years before and set yeah, in Vietnam. It, yeah, it takes place in Africa originally, and it's a, like, it's barely a novel. It's like yeah. a novella, really. And, you know, Coppola comes along, throws it into Vietnam with the help of our old friend John Melius, yes, who wrote the screenplay, and uh, you know transplants the story to Vietnam and puts it in the middle of a war and blows it up to epic, <laughs> epic dimensions. Yeah, and uh, and you know the, the thing about Apocalypse Now is it it, it is a great Vietnam movie uh, right at the tail end of the seventies, but it's very you know metaphorical, like everything, almost nothing in that movie is considered like an exact version of something that has yes. happened. Like, it, it yes. all kind of it seems is. that... You, you could even argue that the entire movie could be seen through, like, the drug-induced haze of the main character. So it's, it, it calls it's certainly into not a film, uh, you know, that if you want to learn about Vietnam, maybe Apocalypse Now is not the place to Yeah, start. other than, I mean, in theory, it, it's supposed to be what it might have felt like to be there <laughs> without being a, yeah. a documentary-like version of events. Right, yeah. right. And, I mean, that they nailed pretty well, I thought. You know, it felt it felt very authentic. Uh, but I uh, guess. I'm not a veteran. But, I, you know, I do think, like, like was Apocalypse Now a big hit, Steve? I don't know. I kind of missed it. But but was, was, was it a box office success for Coppola? Because he spent, like, like three years working on it. I mean, it almost killed him. Yeah, I don't think it. I mean, I think it did okay, but it certainly wasn't as big a hit as the Godfather movies. Oh god, and, uh, right. it was critically acclaimed. You critically know, I acclaimed. It, it won the grand prize at Cannes, but um, yeah, I have to imagine that the studio that financed that was not real pleased with. Yeah, it would have been probably difficult to recoup 
It's production costs on yeah. a film like that. Of course, over the years, it probably has done it because God knows Coppola has re-released it enough times it is. It is in the, various uh... forms. Um, and that's also been one of the one of those fun elements of Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Different versions that continually come out. You know, like uh, even at the time of its original release, there was a longer version that was playing concurrently that just had like a bunch of explosions at the end, so people could get high and trip out on the cool oh, lights. That's good marketing. It, well, I saw that one in the theater when when I was in college. And Just as an aside, the, Andre, do you have a favorite version of Apocalypse Now? It's the one with the explosions at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the just the original theatrical one. I actually remember the uh, Apocalypse Now Redux. Redux. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what he's going for. It's just it's just more. It just added in all the deleted scenes, and to me, no, I mean like, with the name Redo, what's with the UX? Well, what is that? The Why French he... have featured prominently. But it's not a French. Version. Well, that's true. Good point. Okay, so just because he stuck a French plantation sequence in it, there you go. That's so why it's the called French the Redo. Title. I know that's nice. Interesting. Uh, fine. Who am I? Who am I to argue <laughs> with the logic of? Sir Francis Ford Coppola. Is he a sir? I don't think no, they, so. We don't do that here. Um, no, it's uh, it's a great film. It's a great film, and I will, I mean, I know you've seen it, Andre, but if any of our listeners have never seen Hearts of Darkness, which is the documentary made by Coppola's wife, Eleanor, about the making of Apocalypse Now, that is my favorite making of movie documentary I've ever seen. Yeah, like there's, it's, been, there's been some good ones. There have been some that good is ones. Still but I mean, like that, is, that to me is the best. It's, uh, not only is it informative, but it's it's a very entertaining movie. I mean, it's got its own quotable lines. and uh, There's yeah. all sorts of, there's stuff that I like, when I think of Apocalypse Now, there's moments that I think of of quotable lines that I realize are actually from the heart of darkness. <laughs> you know, like, like just Dennis Hopper being like, I don't know my lines, man. I mean, that's not in the movie. But it that's... sounds to me, Steve, like you view Apocalypse Now as little more than a pretext for the making of Hearts of Darkness. I have them all wrapped in together. Truly love. Yeah, I, uh, I had them both on a VHS tape as a high school kid. I put them all together so you could kind of watch them back to back. Yeah, and. Uh, it's great. I love it. I love it. But but I do think Apocalypse Now has made an enormous impact on uh, sort of the zeitgeist of the country to some extent. I think it. I think it had such a huge impact that Hollywood literally had to take several years off before really tackling anything set in Vietnam. I really don't remember anything being set in Vietnam until like 1982. So they literally took off a couple of years. And before they could figure out what kind of a movie they could do about Vietnam. Yeah. And uh, strangely enough, the person who brought us one of the first 80s Vietnam movies was, ironically, Sylvester Stallone. With the first Rambo movie called First Blood, which is weird. And I'll talk about this a little bit later, but, like, First Blood is a fairly serious movie. It's, It's an action film. It's about a... Vietnam vet who basically goes crazy in a small northwest town and uh, ends up kind of on the lam fighting the local police department and the National Guard and various other things. And it's a it's a weird one, man. It's a weird, weird movie. But what's weird to me about it the most, what's most weird to me about it, Steve, is, um, is the fact that it's... Um, it's not a fantasy about Vietnam. It actually kind of very clearly shows and at points 
very clearly says about what kind of hell our men went through in that country and what kind of hell they yeah. went through when they came back. I mean, First Blood, the original Rambo movie, is kind of, it's, it's an action movie about PTSD. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and this kind of also carries over from the end of the 70s that, uh, you know, not Apocalypse Now, but some of the other prominent 70s Vietnam, Vietnam movies like Coming Home or The Deer Hunter are more about yeah, like the psyche of the soldiers after the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as much about, you know, like how, ter- you know, they certainly talked about what went on there, but it was more like that was the focus of the movie. And even Rambo, I mean, it's more taken through a genre of the stranger in town action, but that's what it's about. It's about what the war did to people. Yeah. But then... Yeah. It takes know, it very seriously. Yeah. But the director of that film, Ted Kotcheff, the who did an awesome job. I mean, First Blood is... Is a terrific. Picture, it's very good, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, it's strong. It holds up. Stallone is one of his best performances. It's well structured. All the performances in it are great, actually. Uh, and uh, the very next film that that director directs is called Uncommon Valor with Gene Hackman and Patrick Swayze. So you got eighty two, eighty three. Same director sort of brings Vietnam back to the fore of American cinema. Uh, Uncommon Valor was not a huge hit, but people. Uh, know it, generally like it. It's a cool film, and um, essentially it creates this, um, I don't want to call it a cliche, maybe cliche is a little strong, but it certainly creates this archetypical scenario where American servicemen, Vietnam veterans, go back to Vietnam to rescue their comrades who are still being held in POW camps, because we, that was that was a conversation happening at the yeah. time, and this sort of rescuing of the POWs, uh, which really starts with Uncommon Valor, and then continues to Missing in Action in 84, Rambo 2 in 85. So it sort of starts this whole movement of these films that are essentially trying to refight the Vietnam War for the souls of the American public. Well, and... You know, again, I was a child at the time, but you have to imagine that some of it was just had to be wrapped up in, like, the election of Reagan and the idea of, you know, like, in the, especially in the early 80s, you know, the United States becoming a little bit more um, nationalistic. Uh, I mean, that is not good or bad, but, you know, like, in a, more up with uh, pro-military and maybe... You know, the 70s. Definitely more jingoistic. Yeah, jingoistic. Sure. And so then, like... Yeah, coming know, out of the very cynical time of the 70s. Well, and that the was his, cynicism whole, his the slogan, right? It's morning in America morning again, in America. right? Yeah, so right. it's like, right. all of a sudden, like, let's have these fantasies about, like... Because Vietnam, even by then, considered, you know, kind of like a, a big shame in America. You know? Yeah, it's that, a like, stain on our, on our history. Yeah, that, uh... It just, very like, recent history. Correct. So then, after, you know, these, how the soldiers then, and being bummed out, then there become some movies about, like, well, what if we could have a fantasy we went back and we did it right, you know? Like, let's go kick ass the way America's meant to. And, uh, like, you know, Uncommon Valor, not quite as... In, Uncommon Valor did this, but then Rambo, First Blood Part Two, like, you know, just taking it to a more ridiculous... Rambo level. took it to almost a parody, and then yeah. there, there were, in fact, parodies of Rambo going forward. Uh, one of them starring Charlie Sheen. But uh, but it wasn't like Rambo took it to the furthest point, but, you know, there were sort of in the middle, there were the missing in action movies. There were three of them, 
Okay, and they were all basically about the same thing. They start Chuck Norris. It's right there in the title. Exactly. They were all, all revolved around going back to Vietnam, kicking some ass, and in the, in the process, bringing back some of our boys. And this was weird, you know. It was, it's hard for me to think about another time in the history of cinema where films as a whole just tried to rewrite events that happened like 10 years before that. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's a weird kind of a thing that was going on. And, uh, and those movies were very successful, man. I mean, like, even like Missing in Action 3, you know, the, that kind of stuff. Very successful, very, uh, very reflective of the Reagan era, I thought, and very kind of weird. You know, it's hard, I, like, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that that whole little mini movement that happened in the 80s with these films. Yeah. Like, uh, like, what does it say? Is it just escapism? Is it, like, there, there, there's like a whole psychological thing that, that confuses me. And, and uh, Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a larger question, but yeah, is it just erasure of the bad vibes of both Vietnam and the 70s? Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it, it, it really, really felt like that. It was almost like, you know, like like some kind of a psychological cleansing yeah. <laughs> that happened, but uh, it didn't last long, Steve. No. It didn't last long because by the mid '80s is a little movie called Platoon in 1986. Yes, Oliver Stone, kind of a intimate epic. I don't know if it's that much of an epic. It's a very intimate film, Platoon, isn't it? It's just like like I, I like how. Con- contained it is, how he just kind of puts you viscerally in the middle of the shit and 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 just keeps you there without much of a narrative. It's like there's not a point to it, which of course there's, you know, from a point of view of a grunt, there's not a lot of point to what's happening. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, Platoon is, you know, movies in general, one of the things movies do, which I like, is that they put you in scenarios where you maybe wouldn't get to experience you know, like, what's it like to be in a war? What's it like to rob a bank? And Platoon is very much, the whole movie is centered around, you know, here's what it was like. So Oliver Stone, you know, himself, he was in Vietnam. He was an infantryman. So, you know, you have to imagine that Platoon, which he wrote as well as directed, is, you know, it's his version of what it was like over there. And it seems pretty extreme. Like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> but... You think? I mean, uh, as... He was there and I was not, so I, I guess so. But Platoon certainly, you know, it was a, it was a big hit. It won Best Picture. It won Best Director, and uh, it had a very significant impact on the movies. I think it did. Yeah, I think it really had a, like it was almost a, a sort of a, a genre restarter to some extent. You know what I mean? He's the film was, was a big hit for what it was. It was a powerful cinematic experience. I remember going to see it with my friends when I was like in high school and uh, it was it was a powerful film, Steve. It was visceral. It really it really put you in the in the middle of the action uh, and uh, it it made a it made an impact on me as a film goer for sure. And I and uh, it was a very memorable film going experience. I thought, uh, and uh, it definitely kind of started started things moving in the Vietnam direction within the next couple of years. Literally, 
there were Vietnam combat films everywhere, right? Yeah, well, there was, so Platoon was 86, and 87 had three significant ones. I mean, you have to imagine that they were in production, you know, as Platoon was saying, in a similar time. Yeah, it's, so they can't quite be called reactions to Platoon, but, um, yeah, they do seem almost like a post-Platoon cinema. And uh, the three big ones in 87 were um, Hamburger Hill, Good Morning Vietnam, and, of course, Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. So um, I have never seen Hamburger Hill. Have you seen that, Andre? I've seen Hamburger Hill. Hamburger Hill is a good combat movie. You know, it's it gives you what you want. Uh, it's got a good cast. But it suffers from basically not being as good as Platoon. Yeah. Uh, and that's really its biggest biggest problem. And you realize just how strong Platoon is uh, when you compare it to a Hamburger Hill, which is, from what I understand, you know, very reverential of what actually happened in the battle that they're they're discussing. That the film is good, the, it's exciting, it's uh, moving, but it's not Platoon, and uh, and that becomes like a lot of. It was becomes an issue, just like movies were afraid of Apocalypse Now. I think Platoon suddenly became a new standard for Vietnam era combat film. Of course, uh, you mentioned uh, Good Morning Vietnam, and that movie is set in Vietnam, but it's not really a combat film, right? It's, it's not uh, a combat film, but it is very much a movie about Vietnam. Yes, that's why I mean I think it does count. It and, belongs uh, in that category. Agreed. Yeah, and uh, also I. It's kind of an infamous... Is Good Morning Vietnam the first movie that really used uh, Louis Armstrong's version of What a Wonderful World to horrible, truthfully effect? Because <laughs> uh, I know it's been done many, many times since, and I think that might have been the first one. Well, I don't think it, like I don't think that song was used like that. Uh, but, the, you know, you could think of other instances of, like, pseudo-sarcastic uses yeah. of music, especially, like, at the end of Dr. Strangelove. You know, when We'll Meet Again is playing and, you know, nuclear bombs are going off, destroying humanity. Uh, I haven't but, seen Good Morning Vietnam in a long time. I remember loving it as a kid. Uh, it is also, you know, like kind of peak 80s Robin Williams. Uh, I mean, certainly a movie, it's hard to imagine somebody else doing that movie. So, uh, like, I don't know how accurate that is because, you know, Robin Williams was not a Vietnamese uh, he was not a uh, radio host in Vietnam, so it's hard for me to imagine that any of the people who had a similar job in Vietnam sounded like Robin Williams. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm okay with Good Morning Vietnam. I'm not a big fan. Yeah. I do prefer movies about Vietnam having to do with the actual war side of things. Uh, not because I'm bloodthirsty, Steve, but because... That's just the genre I like. I like more. Yeah, and there well, was plenty of that genre in the '80s. Well, the combat films let you experience it if you've never experienced it. But then, Good Morning Vietnam. You know the the disc jockey character, or the I guess not disc jockey, but you know the radio host. Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit more of an audience surrogate. That if you've never been in combat, you can at least kind of. That guy seems more like you than, say, like Tom Berenger in Platoon. <laughs> oh, God. We would hope. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Uh, yes, that is that is true. Robin Williams is a lot more like me. Certainly as hairy as me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, more than Tom Berenger, the psychotic Sergeant Barnes for Platoon. 
and you know, again, you like you you come back to Platoon because of these archetypes. You know, Barnes is so unforgettable with his hideously disformed face, and even more hideously disformed soul. Yes, and uh, and of course. Uh, the other sergeant in that film, the wonderful Willem Dafoe, who still is a giant star. And uh, this was actually the first time we saw Willem Dafoe not play a villain, Steve. Up to that point, Willem Dafoe was a very, very memorable villain actor. That's all he played were weirdos and criminals and sexual deviants. Sure. And here comes Platoon, and this guy is put completely against type to play this wonderful empathic decent human being in the middle of the madness and he does a he does a brilliant and heartbreaking job well and yeah and you know his death scene which they made into the poster of the movie spoiled it spoiled it ah, Steve well, damn it and uh, but that I mean that image I remember being everywhere <laughs> yeah, that was a very iconic image from that film. Again, it's hard not to come back to it. I mean, it's literally the pinnacle of the 80s cinema. It's certainly made Oliver Stone, whose star has been rising steadily since the late 70s. And, of course, we already kind of tangentially talked about him because he was credited as the writer of Conan the Barbarian. Then he was credited as the writer of Scarface, uh, yeah. another sort of iconic 80s picture. And... Uh, and then he made a really good movie called Salvador with James Woods. Uh, really, really strong kind of lower budget picture. Very political again. And then the next thing is Platoon, and boom, he is a uh, household name. Yeah, and you know, at the beginning of the pod, we were talking about the boomers and the obsession with the '60s. And uh, man, uh, Oliver Stone was kind of the director for that time. Oh my like, god. If ever anybody was obsessed with the 60s, it was Oliver Stone. And he made many movies about different aspects of the 60s, you know, whether it's Platoon or Born on the Fourth of July or The Doors or JFK, just a lot. And then, uh, you know, even in interviews, I mean, Oliver Stone didn't shy away from this. He uh, was very upfront about saying that he thought the 60s were like the most important decade, certainly in modern human history, how all of our great leaders were killed. And, uh, you know, regardless of... Whether or not you agree with him or not, that's just... Oliver Stone was a major... His success as a big Hollywood director, I felt, really was tied in with this obsession with the 60s that the 80s had. Yeah, do you think that Oliver Stone's sort of, like, political bent was in some way a a very strong reaction to the films that came a little bit earlier in the 80s? Films like Missing in Action and Rambo... Do you think it was kind of a swing back, kind of a normalizing event? Well, if you think of Platoon as at least a semi-autobiographical picture... And it is. Yeah. Well, then you have to imagine that Oliver Stone, who was in Vietnam, would watch something like Missing in Action and think, well, this is a load of shit, right? (laughs) I mean, like, you'd be like, this is not... I mean, and Oliver Stone, you know, himself is a fairly liberal person, but fairly like, well, apart from he's, just he's like, like the, to the uh, left of Lenin. Yeah, apart from his politics, I'm just mean in terms of his, you know the portrayal of Vietnam in the movies. Yeah, kind of the whole point of Platoon was Oliver Stone was looking at the portrayal of Vietnam and being like, none of these guys got it right. For sure. Like I want to, I want to show you what it was like. From a grunt's perspective. From a grunt's perspective. And, like, even to get away from the more, like, uh, 
shall we say, operatic treatment yeah. you, that you got in Apocalypse Now and you got even in The Deer Hunter to some extent as well, right? Which both operated, like you said, on a more symbolic, metaphorical level, whereas nothing symbolic about Oliver Stone. When Oliver Stone makes a movie about something, that movie's about that thing <laughs> every single time. Yeah. You know, his movie about Alexander the Great, not one of his best, uh, from, you know, what is it, 20 years ago now? Yeah. Uh, that's movies about Alexander the Great. It's not a metaphor for something else. <laughs> so, complete lack of desire for, like, to be clever about it. Just a total, honest, and very sincere commitment to the subject matter is what Oliver Stone brought to cinema. And he's still kind of bringing it. He's still working, obviously. It's just, I think, his, uh, his brand of uh, kind of sincere idealism has uh, gone out of fashion a little bit. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, Oliver Stone is his own beast. That, uh, uh, but We should do a show on Oliver Stone at some point. It's a fascinating topic. Yeah, I, I think it's He's also a very technically innovative director. He really is. He tries things. He doesn't rest on his laurels. He tries to make a different movie, every movie. You know, I, I, I have a lot of respect for him as a, as a director. Yeah, Platoon uh, is, I mean, it was a game changer both for Vietnam movies and for him personally. I mean, like, Oliver Stone was not a household name before Platoon. Well, and yeah, Platoon got all kinds of awards, and uh, and yeah, it definitely was a game changer for him. And, of course, he, he came back to the well pretty quickly, right? Uh, to the well of Vietnam, right? Uh, because just a couple of years later, Born on the Fourth of July came along. Born on the Fourth of July. Born on the Fourth of July is, uh, you know, it's it's not bad, but I, that is one of those movies. It's one of my least favorite Tom Cruise performances, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's one of my least favorite Oliver Stone. Films. Yeah, and you know, it's the biography basically of this guy named Ron Kovic, who was a Vietnam veteran. You know, he he wanted to go to Vietnam. He was there, and then his experience kind of radicalized him. To uh, he was paralyzed in the war and came back and became, you know, an anti-military guy. Um, but, the, you know, we've discussed, we had a whole episode on Tom Cruise, uh, if anybody wants to go back and look it up. I know, Andre, that you and I are both, in general, pretty pro-Tom Cruise. I'm pro-Cruise. Uh, Pro-Cruise, but, uh, but the thing about Tom Cruise to me is, like, I, sometimes I hate overly serious Tom Cruise. Yes. Because... It's my least favorite thing in any performer where you can really see the acting. Like uh, Tom Cruise, and in this movie, it's a really bad example of it. You just just really see Tom trying to give you some sort of super deep performance, which is not the same as giving it. (laughs) Well, like the film itself, it's, 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 it's kind of nauseatingly earnest. Yeah. Uh, And, um... And again, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not a super cynical person. I am somewhat cynical, I suppose. But not, <laughs> I'm not so cynical that I'm not affected by genuine emotional content yeah. in cinema. I very much am affected by it. And to me, the whole Born on the Fourth of July just didn't, it just didn't work. It was, it was just too vehement. It was almost like, like Platoon and Wall Street gave Oliver Stone kind of a green light to do whatever he wants and just kind of 
just kind of spew it all out there without any real consideration for art or narrative and and it kind of gave Tom Cruise the permission to really emote heavily and emote he does and the whole movie is very emotive it's like up to 11 at all times yeah. at all times even when it's happy it's up to 11 uh, and it's tough but I don't I don't want to live at 11 the whole time I don't want to live at 11 for two and a half hours and uh, I'm not a fan of that film it's one of my least favorite Oliver Stone films actually but it also but it's part of this sort of uh, it's in the mix of yeah, 80s decade long yeah, yeah, yeah decade long examinations of uh, of the Vietnam cinema of course like right in there in 87 you have what may be maybe the greatest 80s Vietnam combat film to come out that decade period and that would be Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket yes uh, and, uh, well, boy, I mean, it's weird. Like, we, we don't talk about Kubrick a lot, do we, Steve, on, on, on our podcast? Well, he's a very often discussed filmmaker. Um, he's unique. Uh, I mean, I will say, for anybody who knows me, it's, you know, I mean, Kubrick's one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, he, he is, and it's like sometimes he's talked about so much that you almost feel sheepish saying that, you know? It'd be like... Me saying, you know, it was a really great rock band, Andre. Have you ever heard of the Beatles? The, the Beatles, Beatles did some good work. Is that with two E's? Or? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, but Kubrick, I mean, in this point, you know, he's a little bit older. Um, Full Metal Jacket was his first movie in seven years. Yeah. That's yeah. a long gap between movies. But yeah, that's right. Um, I want to, I'm pretty sure, like, around The Shining, maybe right after The Shining, was when Kubrick kind of went into his. Uh, reclusive legend period yes so uh, certainly by the 90s like Kubrick was this guy who we all knew he was alive and you know he had friends he would speak to he had a family he was close to but you know he didn't give a lot of interviews he you know famously lived in England right and mysterious did not, and didn't travel so yeah he became this weird you know the cinematic equivalent of like the weird old man who lives at the top of the hill <laughs> and uh, so Full Metal Jacket was made during this period sure. and full metal jacket um you know probably most of our listeners have seen it but if you haven't it's to me it, it's like three different movies melded together and the middle part is kind of i guess this speaks again to the imp like how big a deal platoon was because the middle third of full metal jacket feels like other vietnam movies like it feels a little bit like platoon of like okay we're with the guys in Vietnam, there's scenes of them interacting with uh, the locals. That it, I'm not saying it's bad, but it does feel similar to other movies. So by the sure. time I saw Full Metal Jacket, I was like, "Oh, I've seen this before." You know, like I'm familiar right. with what's going on here. But the beginning, the first third and the last third are very different. In some ways, closer to Apocalypse Now, where. Uh, the movies, they're both like a horror movie, and also the concept of reality gets played with a little bit. Uh, you know, the first third is obviously all at boot camp and this very intense uh, traveling with uh, Private Pyle, uh, the great Vincent D'Onofrio. Yes. And then the final third where they're, it's kind of like the whole uh, sequence with the sniper. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love Full Metal Jacket. It's, uh, it's intense and... Like the middle again, the middle third to me is it's it's not bad, but you're like okay, but the first third and the last bit are unlike anything else I've seen. 
Yeah, it's a unique film because, I mean, it's structured uniquely and it's uniquely Kubrickian and it does deal, like, I'm not sure it's about Vietnam per se. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think it has that much to say about the conflict in Southeast Asia we refer to as Vietnam. Uh, I think it has uh, another agenda altogether, like most most of Kubrick's other films. I mean, the know? first third could almost be considered a critique of the military in general, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, it definitely talks about war and what the military lifestyle does to the human spirit. Uh, and uh, so it's, you know, it's a fairly deep film. And I think like all Kubrick's stuff, it's like his stuff is dense yeah. and it has multiple interpretations. And it's it's hard to talk about it with without just just kind of contradicting yourself a lot of times. Well, I feel, <laughs> just, like, you know, and it's funny, you can go back and see this was almost always the case, but certainly it was the case with um, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut. All of these movies, when they're initially released, the reviews are kind of mediocre. Like, they're not, like, everybody hailing it. A lot of them are like, eh, well, maybe, I don't know. Like, some people like it, some people don't. And then after people sit with it for a few years... Um, people were like, actually, that was really good. And then 10 years later, it's kind of an agreed-upon masterpiece. Right, absolutely. Like, I remember for a fact that when Shining came out, people said, like, ah, it's probably the worst thing that Kubrick's ever made. Yeah. And I, I mean, this was like a common review. People were like, well, I mean, you want to see a great Kubrick movie, you know, you should watch Clockwork Orange. This is, this is just a stupid Stephen King adaptation. And uh, now, of course... You know, a lot of people swear it's his best film. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, again, Kubrick is, is too dense and his, his acolytes are too, I don't know, like maybe almost too intellectual. Like if you go on any of the Kubrick sites or whatever, you're going to, you, there's some smart people there. And it's, the, yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, they have some smart conversations. And in many ways, those conversations are almost too smart for the kind of discussion we're having <laughs> where we have to cover the entire decade. Uh, let me just say, I love Full Metal Jacket. It's, it, it blew me away in a very different way from Platoon because, as I was say, saying, it was Platoon had a big visceral impact on me when I saw it in the theater. And when I saw Full Metal Jacket, my reaction was a little, little more, like, reserved, right? Like, I'm, I wasn't quite sure what I just saw sure. and what it was trying to say. Uh, and and I wasn't sure about its tone, you know, because it's got a slightly sarcastic tone to it, like a lot of Kubrick's films, in my opinion. And uh, and that's a little weird, you know. Like I was after the 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 straightforward vehemence of Oliver Stone, uh, Kubrick's film seemed almost like it was mocking the. Vietnam War uh, in a weird way, you know? But I remember walking out of that theater and, and you know, the, the the titles are going, the Fate to Black is st still playing, and, uh, um, well, I'm sorry, pa Painted Painted Black. Painted Black is still playing. Uh, and, uh, and there was a guy sitting in the back row, and he was an older guy, and he was wearing, a, like, a military jacket. He just seemed like he would have been in Vietnam, you know? And uh, I'll never forget, he, he literally sat there with, like, a thousand-yard stare staring at the screen. And, uh, 
and I and that made an impact on me too. Yeah. You know, seeing that guy just completely zone out on what he just saw and kind of go into another place was uh, was definitely an indication of the power of that film. And it's a it's it's an awesome movie, very very watchable over and over again too, which is kind of always a sign of a good picture. You know. Yeah. But uh, but those two right there, Platoon, Full Metal, Metal Jacket, are to me the pinnacle of the genre. And of course, and that wasn't even close to the end of the decade, right? There was plenty more. Well, there was a big, uh, I mean, one of the last major ones I want to mention had in 89 was uh, Brian De Palma's Casualties of War. Casualties of War. Uh, Casualties of War, which is, you know, it's, it's kind of about a specific incident. Uh, but then it uses that incident to like extrapolate into like the moral dilemmas of what went on in the war. And uh, so, Casualties of War stars Michael J. Fox. I recently rewatched it, and uh, I, Andre, I kept going back and forth about if mm-hmm. Michael J. Fox was the right choice, or the wrong choice. Yes. Uh, on one hand, I never for a second believed he was a soldier. Yeah. Like just a, you know. You know, there's all sorts of actorly things that become cliche to talk about, about how when actors study for a role, you know, like, well, how does you know, how does a banker walk? How does a banker do this? And you see, like, the shots of the platoon walking around, and nothing about Michael J. Fox or his body language makes any sense as a soldier. <laughs> but he does a very good job about conveying the, like, moral angst of all the actions going on around him and how to deal with that. So, uh, you know, this is compared to Sean Penn, who does seem like a soldier, like young Sean Penn. Sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a classic cinematic bully, but uh, he does, especially in the early scenes, I believe he's a sergeant. You know, he's a, he's a soldier in this group. It makes sense. It makes sense that he's a leader of these men, even though he's not that much older than them. Yeah. And uh, I bought it all. I mean, he, he's a terrifying cinematic creation. That, he, uh, he is. I mean... And- he kind of plays the role like a, you know, a monster movie. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's really really scary in that film, and uh, and it's a funny matchup, like you're saying. I mean, I think it's almost like this classic Hollywood matchup where you have this this uh, uh, this method actor, this dyed in the yeah. wool method actor like Sean Penn, who really inhabits the character and comes up with specific little quirks about that character. Uh, and does all of these little things, sometimes to, in my opinion, of Sean Penn, sometimes to the detriment of my enjoyment of the film. Yeah. In that movie, that was not the case. No, he plays it straight, yeah. but but he is very, you know, he's buried in the character. It's not you're not watching Sean Penn, you're watching that psycho that he's playing in the film, whereas what you have with Michael J. Fox was kind of a movie star, where Michael J. Fox basically just plays versions of Michael J. Fox in everything he plays, right? Yeah. And, and that sort of comes in. But they, Michael J. Fox was very effective in sort of showing the moral, uh, you know, back and forths being in that position. Well, and he's a great audience yeah. surrogate because Michael J. Fox is so likable. Like, he's charming, yeah. and by this point, audiences know him from Family Ties, they know him from Back to the Future, so he's like a beloved actor. So he when is. you watch, like, somebody, who, an actor who has that kind of relationship with the audience, like, watch that actor be troubled, then it's very good about making the audience troubled. And, uh, and Casualty of War is structured perfectly of... You know, it's based on a real incident, and I'm not sure... I mean, presumably it's the five guys in the in the patrol were similar to the five guys, but it's just great that there's like on one end of the spectrum, you've got Michael J. Fox's character 
The other end, you've got Sean Penn. And then the other three guys kind of are in the middle. Like, there's a guy who's almost as sadistic as Sean Penn. And then there's a guy who's almost as decent as Michael J. Fox. And then you've got John C. Riley right in the middle who's a little wishy-washy and back and forth. Uh, which works, works great for the movie. Um, and the movie, you know, it's got some issues. It's got some speeches in it that are way too heavy-handed and uh, really stick out like a sore thumb because there are other parts of the movie that are not that are done really smartly. So then when this speechifying comes in, you're like, all right, here we go. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, Brian De Palma, who uh, we'll talk about in another episode a little more, like brings all of his techniques about making suspense movies to bear on... On a movie where, I mean, you you know going in what's going to happen. I mean, it's kind of like if you looked up, like, what's this movie about? And it's about this patrol of people who go out and they they rape this Vietnamese girl. And Michael J. Fox's character is not okay with that. I mean, you kind of know that's almost, you know... That's not, in the trailers, too. Yeah. So you know what's going to happen, but still the suspense is there throughout the whole thing. And that's a credit to De Palma. Like, the movie is told like a suspense or a horror movie, you know? Yeah, he's a he's a great filmmaker for sure. I think by the time Casualties of War came out, I think there may have been a little bit of a burnout from a, from an audience from perspective. A yeah. I, I think there was a little bit like people felt like they've had enough of the Vietnam War combat, and uh, and I think it was sort of sliding in that direction a little bit. Uh, and and I think the movie may have suffered at the box office a little bit. Um, Possibly because of Michael J. Fox as well, because Michael J. Fox was really, he was really trying to move away from his persona, and uh, you know sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. I think for Michael J. Fox, it did not quite work. Like Michael J. Fox was not able to adapt his white comedian persona and move into like more hardcore drama. He's done it since, of course, but uh, yeah, I but remember. not not to a massive. Uh, like successful effect, you know, in my opinion, and and I think that that movie was a little bit of a problem, and I do think that matchup between the ultra committed Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox, basically being Michael J. Fox but in a more dramatic milieu, is uh, was was I don't know, I'm not sure how well it worked. I thought it did work. I mean, it's similar to uh, like you know compared to. There Will Be Blood, a movie we've discussed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. many times, but uh, where that pairing, I thought, was too one-sided. This one, I actually did I did think it worked. I mean, Sean Penn's terrifying, but Michael J. Fox actually does have some scenes of, you know, I guess, steely resolve where yeah. he's he's not giving in. He can and, hold uh, his own. Well, yeah. I mean, he's a movie star. He yeah. can definitely hold his own, but... but, uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, I had I had some reservations about that film, and and again, I will say that I think there was a little bit for me at least, from because, yeah, I'm remembering this as a slightly older guy than you. Uh, I remember there was a little bit of a, of a, over uh, oversaturation of the Vietnam. Well, I guess by the end of the '80s, all sorts of people were trying different things, right? So in 1989, yeah. we have uh, Tom Cruise trying to play a grizzled hippie. Michael J. Fox playing a uh, conscious torn soldier, and uh, Michael Keaton deciding that he's Batman. 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, right? It's it's an interesting decade for sure, and I think it's one of the things that does make it interesting. But I think this whole cycle of 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 Vietnam films in the '80s does not get covered enough. I, I think it's a very very interesting time in cinematic history where where cinema or Hollywood, for better or worse, however you define Hollywood. Uh, actually like really made an effort to help the country get through their uh trauma of the Vietnam War and I, and I think uh and I think again people underestimate the decade of the 80s because it's hard for me to think of another decade that does that I mean after World War II there was definitely a lot of trauma reflected in the cinema right but it was very rarely handled in such a direct manner, right? Yeah. It was sort of, you know, they sort of wove it out to paranoid film noirs and, uh, you know, spy films and movies where, you know, women are threatening and so on and so forth. But, I mean, here we're literally Hollywood is directly addressing recent events. And and it's popular. People are into it. Yeah. Uh, that is unusual. And, uh, and, and again, there was like other films, and you mentioned Good Morning Vietnam, but there were there were quite a few other films that dealt with sort of the tangential effects of the Vietnam War, right? Uh, Coppola made a pretty good one, Gardens of Stone, with James Caan. That's a strong film about, it's Vietnam era, but it's stateside, and it deals with an older soldier preparing a young soldier when he goes off to Vietnam, right? I mean, there was, uh, that's a pretty cool film. I think that's a little bit of a under underrated Coppola film, and uh, we talk about Francis in another episode in the '80s. But uh, but uh, it, it's that, that that one's worth watching. And uh, uh, Hanoi Hilton, uh, I you know I saw it a long time ago. I don't remember it. Michael yeah, Moriarty. I've never seen that. That's yeah. a prisoner of war movie. So again, sort of taking taking the prisoner of war or prisoner uh, genre into the Vietnam era. Uh, it's supposed to be pretty decent, actually. And um, the one that stands out for me uh, is actually The Killing Fields. Okay, I think that's Roland Jaffe's yeah. movie about what happened after the Vietnam War. And and I think that's a very interesting thing to mention because, you know, there's so much, so much discussion throughout the 80s, especially, and, and you know, usually by people coming out of the 60s and the discussion would primarily be revolving around the futility of war and how horrible war is and especially this Vietnam War. Who were we fighting? Why were we invading these people's land? Why were we doing this? You know, all of these questions and and righteous questions. Uh, But um, what you see in the killing fields is what happens when the country sort of doesn't want to be a war anymore and doesn't want to argue with their kids over their dinner table and then leaves the conflict before they should have and ends up resulting in the deaths of like over a million Vietnamese and Cambodians at the hands of the communist regimes in violation of the peace agreement the United States made with these people in Paris, which effectively ended the war, quote-unquote, with honor. And basically all we did was hightail out of there, and that resulted in what you see in the killing fields, which is massive, massive death on a a mass scale. 
Well, and the Killing Fields is unique. It was ahead of, you know, at the time when a lot of the other movies, as we said, were kind of more fantasy or exploitative even, that the Killing Fields was ahead of the game in, like, thinking about the human cost of the non-soldiers. And that's the thing we didn't mention about, uh, you know, Platoon and Full Metal Jacket and, um, you know, just some of the films in the mid to late 80s was they really started to reckon with treating the Vietnamese people to, like, as... As, frankly as humans whereas you know say in Rambo they're almost like it's the faceless other you know like they're just disposable and the later Vietnamese movies really try to do a moral reckoning with that about like you know even if these some of these people were on a different side of the army but you know what was the cost you know to the people who lived in Vietnam not just to our soldiers yeah it's uh, it, it's it's really interesting how um how these films kind of the arc like starting to do research for this episode the, the arc of the Vietnam cinema of the 80s became interesting to me you know the, the like I started clearly seeing how society overall kind of went from the early 80s trying not to think about it to like kind of the the late early 80s when they were starting to fantasize oh wouldn't it have been great if we won this thing and that went to the mid 80s and then suddenly boom you hit the reality of movies like platoon and hamburger hill and full metal jacket and uh and and then you had this sort of like but wait a minute you know maybe maybe there's another side to this and so on and so forth it's a very interesting trajectory of a, of a subgenre of the Vietnam films and uh, and again I'm very glad we got to talk about it Steve because it's uh, it's uh, it's interesting it's an interesting bunch of movies that came out in the 80s on this subject and uh, and and a bunch of good movies you know movies that hold up you know there's really not a lot of stinkers in that whole group that we discussed not as really not a single one well uh, except for uh, Rambo 2 for <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even missing in action two, the beginning has uh, has some things going for it, Steve. Even that, uh, but not so much. I'd say to our listeners who have not seen all these films, uh, I'd probably skip Ram. You know, missing in action two, uh, the beginning. Yeah, check them out, but don't check them out all at once. So I did a lot of uh, rewatching and prep for this, and man, if you. It doesn't exactly put you in the best mood watching a lot of these downer Vietnam-related movies in a row. Platoon is a bummer, man. Yeah. It is Platoon especially is a bummer. It's a big bummer. Right? Casualties I mean, of War is no uh, picnic either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. These movies are emotionally draining, and, and I suppose they should be. And, uh, and it's cool, like, everything kind of came together. You know, cinema was free to show what they wanted to show and be... You know, these are all hard R movies, so they weren't for the faint of heart. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and again, yeah, you know, it's a sophisticated audience. I mean, who would go to the theater to see something as brutal as Platoon in 2020? I mean, we all we want is escapism. You know, and and the fact that there were movies like that that were extremely successful in 1986 just shows you how far we've really fallen in the cinema and i know this is a this is an ongoing pet peeve of mine but uh it just seems like we've fallen so far i mean crowds used to go in mass to see platoon steve platoon well i mean part of the marketing of these movies is that they could 
from a certain angle be seen as an action movie. Well, there's certainly action movies. Platoon's got great action sequences. Yeah. And so does Full Metal Jacket. That's what I mean. There was an audience for, you know, like young men who you could go enjoy it as an action movie even if you didn't want to or were too young to fully take it in of, like, the moral reckoning. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, it's, it, it, and it is funny. And, again, and, and it also shows this interesting thing that, you know, no matter how much a movie may try to show the horror, the insanity, the brutality, the needlessness, the pointlessness of any given thing, somebody's still going to watch that movie and want to be part of that. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll never forget, I had a friend named, named Victor in high school who just always wanted to be a Marine, uh-huh. and he loved those movies. And, and, and I even remember going like, like, dude, you know, I know you, you always wanted to be a Marine, but like after watching like Platoon or Full Metal Jacket, you, like this doesn't, this still appeals to you? He's like, oh yeah, even more, this is perfect. This is uh-huh. exactly what I want. And it's, on me, it had the exact opposite effect. Yeah. I'm like, I never want to go into the military after seeing these films. Did so, he, in fact, become a Marine? He certainly did. Oh. He certainly did. And he did a good job at it. And he's out, and he's, you know, family man. Happy Veterans Day to him. Absolutely. Happy, happy Veterans Day, Victor, if you're listening. Uh, but... Uh, but that's all I got. That's all I got on Vietnam, my friend. Yeah, I'm yeah. tired. I'm t- I feel like I've been cutting my way through the bush and uh, knee deep in the, in the shit. Time to withdraw. I think so, man. Time to go back and uh, relax in our, in our little camouflage tent. Yeah. Well, that's it for us today. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Askin. We'll see you next time. We're film driven. This is the end. My only friend. This is the end, my only friend. Oh, our elaborate plans. Everything that stands. It hurts. To set you free.